Hello and welcome back to the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast for Monday, May 29th. We're recording here on Sunday, the afternoon of Sunday, May 28th, and we have just seen a few hours ago the final stage of the 2023 Giro d'Italia, which ended up being a thrilling final week, I think, which is good because the previous two weeks were less than thrilling, as Cosmo, uh, I think, would agree. I, I know he would agree because he said so uh, into a mic, and he recorded himself doing it. So for, <laughs> for all of posterity, we'll be able to know about that. Anyway, we're here to talk about the Giro. We're also going to talk a little bit about the Ride London Classic that occurred over the weekend. It was, as ever... A busy weekend of racing. It's May. That's what happens in May. And we are very excited to talk about all the things that happened. Joining me this week, as ever, bike racing analyst extraordinaire, Cosmo Catalana, you're back in your own home this weekend. Back in my own house. It is sunny and bright. It's, you know, not maybe as historic as the great-grandmother's rocking chair, but it is substantially more comfortable. Trade-offs. It's the trade-offs in life. And also... Back with us for the second straight week from historic Edinburgh, Kit Nicholson. Great to have you back. Thank you for having me back. So we have much to talk about at the Giro. There was some GC action in the final week, which seemed like it was the plan all along for the organizers. I'm not sure if they expected there to be so little in the first two weeks, but we did finally get it in the last week, to an extent. And at the end of 21 stages of racing, we finally crowned a Giro champion. Cosmo, what, what did happen in the end? You don't, you don't need to really go into the, the too much in detail. I think people probably know who won the Giro, but just to set the scene, who won the Giro? Primoz Roglic, I guess you could say over the past, the last two stages, but primarily in the uphill time trial. Yes. He exorcised his demons. You might say of a time trial finale to a grand tour this time, he was the one who needed to gain ground, metaphorically, on Garen Thomas, it was, this time, who went into the final stage with a small advantage on the overall standings. And Primoz Roglic overhauled him in the TT, despite dropping his chain and causing fans around the world probably to shout at their TV and say, no, not again, Prim-. but he won it anyway. He won the TT, he won the overall race. That's his fourth career Grand Tour victory. Gary Thomas finishing second overall, disappointed, but still a great result for Thomas. And Joao Almeida for the first time on a podium at a Grand Tour. He was third. He was, we'll get to this in a bit, I think more impressive this year than he has been in any other Grand Tour we've seen him so far in his career. And those those three were really the, the far and away top three at this Giro. But we didn't know until that penultimate stage who was going to come up with the win. And it was Roglic, despite dropping his chain. Managed to overhaul Gary Thomas and get that big win and maybe get the maybe get the proverbial late TT monkey off his back. Uh, so congratulations to Primoz Roglic. we got lots to talk about with the race. Let's start with the GC action finally kicking into gear in that last week. Uh, we talked about this extensively on previous shows, how there really wasn't much action in the first week. The second week was also pretty muted, and there may have been some... That, that may have had something to do with the weather, but all the same. We just did not have riders attacking each other until, finally, in this third and final week, there were three mass start mountain stages that we got to see some action on, particularly the first one and, and the second of those three. Uh, we got to see riders throwing... Uh, haymaker might be a strong word. 
I don't know. They didn't feel like haymakers, but they were at least attacks. They were probing attacks. Guys were dropped. There was some excitement. Uh, Joel Almeida really kicked things off on May 23rd. That was really the, the first time we got to see some action. And then we got to see plenty of it. There was also some breakaway action basically every day. So there were sort of two races every day. And essentially for the majority of the days of the final week of the Giro, it was Derek G versus other people off the front. And then maybe or maybe not a GC battle in the back of the, well, not the back, but just a little bit farther behind the breakaways. And those breakaway battles actually ended up being really entertaining, unfortunately, for the Canadian fans and for fans everywhere rooting for Derek G. He never actually managed to pull it off. Instead, we had riders like Santiago Buitrago taking wins, and very deserved ones at that. So we, they, they did provide us with action off the front, regardless of what the GC guys were doing uh, in, in the middle of the race. Speaking of G in those last couple of stages, I think what was remarkable was seeing him get into the breakaway on two consecutive mountain stages as a guy who's, well, I think the some of the commentators were commenting on the fact that he was 10, 15 kilos heavier than on stage 19 than Buitrago. Um, and having maybe learned a few lessons and looked around him, he, you know, stage 19, that was the, uh, the day that, that he made his last real effort to win a stage by attacking as early as he, well, as early as he could, taking people by surprise by attacking early. But of course, Buitrago, slowly and steadily, see, little climber, he knows what he's doing on those gradients. He's done races like this before. And he clawed his way back to, to G. But it was so it was, it was there was an inevitability to it. You have to wonder what if he hadn't been in the breakaway the day before, if he'd had a bit more power at the beginning of that push, maybe he'd have had that couple more kilometers. He might have been able to hang on to Buitrago and go for the sprint. Who knows? But nevertheless, I think uh yeah, Buitrago, uh G's doggedness. Um, throughout the race. I did some maths and I'm not sure how Thomas Champion managed to get the breakaway prize. I'm not sure how that quite works because I did some maths and pretty sure that um, Derek G had somewhere in the region of 1,100 kilometres in the breakaway, which is a third of the race. That's amazing. um, Which is bonkers. Um, But yeah, so on to Buitrago, what was really nice after that stage was to see... Well, I mean, Esteban Chavez, he's a particular favourite of mine. He was, uh, um, I think, a lot of people who've been following cycling for a while will know that he has, uh, he's, he's really involved in junior cycling and um, academy cycling in Colombia and South America. And both Buitrago and stage, um, what was it, 13 winner in Rubio, they were both on his academy. And there was a fantastic little video shared by Chavez of the pair of them in, you know, borrowed kit and old bikes when they were teenagers, not an awful lot smaller than they are now, let's face it, um, and just climbing some big old hill in the rain in Colombia. And uh, there's something something very nice about that. Esteban Chavez touches the mountains even when he's not at the races, um, and that suits me perfectly because he's, he's got one of those Grand Tour racer um, pedigrees where, a bit like Derek G, he gives us everything from massive success and drama and stories but an awful lot of heartbreak as well it is sort of well to think of Chavez as having this sort of youth academy when I it's still hard for me not to think of him as being an up-and-coming he's he's 33 now but (laughs) 
it just has it's always felt like i think because of the setbacks over and over again there's always been a sense of oh what what might be ahead for him but yeah he, he is 33 now he's at that point in his career where he's he's helping other young riders out mm-hmm. now which is wild but yeah Derek g continually delivering impressive breakaway performances and heartbreak both of those things and maybe in, in equal measure and i agree i was also wondering there were times where you where it was it was hard not to think well it's it's great that you gave yourself so many chances by getting into so many breakaways in a row. But what if you had targeted one breakaway instead of going for all three of these? Would have would he have had the strength? Uh, but maybe it wouldn't have been as exciting. Fact is, he's a track sprint. He's a track rider, not track sprinter. He's a track endurance rider, but still, it's more of a sprinter than a mountain climber. He had no idea what he was going to be capable of. He, um, he there was a video released by Israel Premier Tech this morning. They'd flown his family in to see him in Rome and he didn't know they were coming. But there was a bit in that video, he'd said, you know, he came to this Giro not really expecting to make it to Rome. So he had no idea that he was going to get into a breakaway in the Dolomites and be up there in the first place. So he was just, I mean, I'm sure there are some good good Sam Bewley quotes out there uh, as to what the plan was in those days. But um, I think we can't be too... Although I would... uh, Although, you know, when, when Butrago was was winching his way onto G's wheel. I was really hoping that G would be able to hang on when Butrago inevitably came round him. But of course, Butrago knew that that was a potential as well. So yes, if he'd had those extra few watts from recovery and a day in the Gruppetto, then that would have been great. But I don't think we can take anything away from the fact that he had no idea what he was capable of. And he comes away from this race potentially thinking about GC because he was that consistent and yeah he didn't the climb times that he did weren't have been comparable to the GC riders but he clearly has some endurance and he clearly doesn't fade in the last week yeah regarding his consistency he finished the Giro today on, on Sunday second in the points classification which is really really hard to do uh, the, the way that the points are you know doled out to be a breakaway rider and finish ahead of Michael Matthews, Mark Cavendish, Pascal Ackerman in the points classification, behind only Jonathan Milan, who was constantly out there in the sprints and, and the clear winner of the of the points jersey. But that's extremely impressive to be that consistent. So Derek G finished with four runner-up rides at this Giro, which is, uh, I, I wrote at some point this week, that that's, a, that's something you only ever see from sprinters, really that many second place finishes where there's that much uh maybe i I don't want to say predictability but it kind of is predictability like with the sprints there's there's a smaller field of people who might be up there in a in a bunch sprint than there are on a breakaway day because breakaways are such a crapshoot and for g to be up there so many times is just uh, such an impressive feat and he wasn't just second in points he was second in kom and in that breakaway competition that i alluded to which makes no sense and he was also in second as of a few hours ago in the intermediate sprints competition after Tom Squeeze went and got the points in the breakaway on the final stage. And we love Tom's, obviously. So it's great to see them both getting onto the podium because G did get the most combative rider award. But um, he was second in but just about every classification except for the generals, the young and, and um, overall. He was so, 22nd in the general classification, I will point out. Well, there we out. go. Well, yeah, it's so, just two Gs. G, add G Thomas into the mix, and it's every classification except for the best young rider that they managed yeah, to cover. Yeah, there you go. And so many second places over the course of the race. Yeah. 
right, we, I, I do want to talk a little bit more about the GC and, and, and Gary Thomas and Primoz Roglic and just the dramatic finale that we had. It took a little while to get the drama in the GC, but we did, we did get some drama, finally. So Joe Almeida on, on the stage 16 really ramped up the battle, trying to make something happen. And almost, sounds like an understatement. He was after it hard from like as early as you could possibly imagine in that's in, in stage 16. Yeah. And, and on that day, Gary Thomas was able to go with him and Primoz Roglic was not. And that was a day, and I want to come back to this, but that was a day where Almeida really livened everything up. Thomas was alive to the danger and Roglic seemed to be in trouble. I mean, that, that coming out of that stage, it, it wasn't only that Roglic lost 25 seconds on stage 16. It, it was also that he clearly wasn't up to it. I mean, it, it, was, it was more, to me, that it wasn't just the time itself. It was more, oh, well, I guess Roglic is just not as good as Thomas, and Thomas is, is going to win this race now. That was, that was proven not to be the case three days later when Thomas and Roglic went head-to-head on Trecima de Lavaredo. It seemed like Thomas was going to get the better of him. He had he had time. He had a few seconds on Roglic and that final few hundred meters. He really waited. I mean, both of them had the same strategy in this race, which was ride very conservatively, rely on their teammates to set a high pace. And in um, Gary Thomas's case, that's uh, Taman Aronsman and well, basically every other amazing Ineos rider. And in Primoz Roglic's case, it was Sepkus doing a lot of work. In the end, both of them were planning, I think, just to use the final few hundred meters of those mountain stages to try to see what they could do and then really rely on that final TT. Uh, but yeah, on, on stage 19, it looked like Thomas was going to put time into Roglic, and then at the very end, Roglic, it, it seemed, had measured his effort perfectly, and Thomas had gone a little hot, uh, and Roglic actually put a few seconds into Thomas, and then we got that final TT showdown. That's where the race was decided. That's where Primoz Roglic overhauled Thomas and took enough time back to take an incredible victory, despite having dropped his chain, he got to get up, had to get off his bike, uh, and and it, it so it happened that that strategy, riding conservatively, waiting for the TT, it worked really well for one of those two riders, and it it could only work for one of them. For the other one, I'm I'm left wondering what might have happened. I I thought it was pretty interesting how on stage 16, Yumbo really worked most of the day, and then. <laughs> It turned out that, that Roglic wasn't feeling that good, um, and they had to kind of scramble at the last second to try and not lose time. Um, and we sort of saw uh, not quite the opposite of that on stage 19, but we, we definitely had a situation where Ineos did a ton of the work, even though Yumbo was pretty clearly feeling good about how, how Roglic was feeling that day. There was a point at which Ineos like, stopped riding and kind of sat up and Yumbo kind of came to the front and also sat up, and they sort of stared at each other for, I don't know, three or four minutes. They talked. I couldn't hear anything on the ambient mics, but it definitely seemed like a, you know, we're we're not going to do the, all the work today, guys. You're going to have to do some work. And Yumbo was like, no, we're not we're not going to do any work either. Um, it, it just it seemed very interesting uh, to see that sort of juxtaposition. I also think on that on stage 19, I think Roglic, you know, went for it. Uh, he was the first person to attack trying to get some time on Thomas with his, his fancy climby only bike. Um, he, he, you know, was the, he was the aggressor most of that day. And until the final, like it was the last couple hundred meters of that race, you had Thomas seemingly opening time on Roglic and then Roglic finding something else and coming back and taking three seconds back from Thomas, which 
with a you know 29 second gap between the two of them on GC is meaningfully relevant time, better than 10 percent reduction in the in the gap. Um, it turned out not to matter, but it it, would, it is not out of the range of po- realm of possibility that it it could have on uh, on that mountain time trial. I'm really left wondering. I mean, Thomas did. There were, there were moments inside the final few hundred meters of some of those mountain stages where Thomas went for it. But in general, he really was relying on this, on the lead that he had, which was not big, and the final TT. And he had a great race. He finished a very close second to a very good rider. I very much like Gary Thomas. Kind of feel like he should have ridden differently. I mean, we only, we only know that now when we realize that Primoz Roglic was better than TT. But at the end of the day... There, he, he left a lot on the table. There were opportunities for Thomas to try to get away. He chose not to attempt to take those opportunities. And it was very close that it that didn't work out for him. But at the end of the day, he didn't win the race. And I'm left wondering, could he have gone from farther out? Could he have actually tried to attack instead of just follow Almeida? Because uh, all of the you know attacks that he did make, which he did race aggressively in the final few hundred meters of some of those mountain stages, it wasn't exactly... Alberto Contador attacking from 100k out of the Vuelta. It was very different, and it, it didn't work out. At the end of the day, the Skytrain helped Primoz Roglic win this race, I think. I think that's the final result. The Skytrain approach, plus Jumbo Visma basically doing the same thing with Sepkus, helped Roglic more than it helped Thomas, and Roglic is your, is your champion. Uh, I wanted to also talk about Joe Almeida, because he has now finished top six, I think, in four of his... Five career Grand Tour appearances, I think that's right. He's finished there or thereabouts several times now. But to me, this year felt, although it was only one place higher than his best ever finish at a Grand Tour, which was fourth in his inaugural uh, Giro race, this third place finish, despite being only one one spot better, significantly more impressive to me. He actually contended for the win. Uh, in, in every past Grand Tour where he has kind of been inside that top six, he has been a more distant, you know, also ran where it was a great ride. Nice job. You finished, you know, inside the top 10 or in, in most cases, top five. But this time around, he actually contended up until the very end. I mean, even into that final time trial, there was still a chance that he might win. I think he had a pretty, he had a pretty significant, you know, amount of space to cover on that final TT, but he was in the mix this time. He really felt to me like an actual, you know, bona fide contender at this race. And given his mix of climbing and TT abilities, I think Almeida and his team have to be really you know, optimistic about what the future holds for him. Yeah, I think that's a great point on his team. And we saw them really go into action on, I think, was it stage 18 when they just rinsed themselves, uh, Vine and McNulty. They then faded the following day, which was very familiar to what we saw at the Tour de France last year with Pogacar but, um, and the team, I mean. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I let myself believe maybe Almeida could win this. Um when he won that stage and he, he until yesterday he of course was the only GC rider to have won a stage that wasn't a time trial um, well he is the only GC rider to have won a stage without it being a time trial um, yeah. so um, uh, he's yeah he, he he like you say he definitely came to the Giro to try and win it he wasn't going for a top five I, that's what it looked like and it was very clear in the last week that that was definitely a possibility um, yeah it's but he clearly, well, he didn't have the uh, the punch to follow. Um, maybe he needs that little bit extra endurance. I don't know. But he he was he was fantastic on the 
final TT as well. So, yeah, he's definitely one to watch. And with the strength and depth that UAE Team Emirates has proved that they've got, um, I'm, I will not be... Well, I don't think it'll be long before he wins um, a Grand Tour. And he and I think he can be a big rival to Evenepoel as well. Um, it's not just Pogacar, Evenepoel, Vingegaard in that new generation of riders. Almeida is definitely up there. I think the big, the big question for me is the really high mountain, high altitude, steep climbs uh, where he still needs to kind of take a step up to really... Make that, yeah. I think that that's the step that he needs to make. But he's still only twenty-four. That's the big thing for him. He, he finished this race not just third. He was the winner of the youth classification. He's that young still that he's able to still be in that in that conversation. So I know that we we have a uh, we have at this point kind of gotten over the fact that uh, young riders win everything all the time now. But twenty-four is still pretty young. Yeah, uh, it, it almost you almost have to correct yourself when you say he's only twenty-four. Yeah. Um, but I guess yeah, he's... it's still very much the case. We we I think we understand that the likes of, well, recent Tour de France champions and both the champions they are not the norm. Um, yeah, we we were well the the youths were spoiled with with back to back Bernal Pogacar. Yeah, was was quite an impressive uh, turn for the youths. Let's also talk about the final stage before we maybe do any more sort of general thoughts on the Giro. Uh, because the final stage did see Mark Cavendish take that big Giro stage win that he was looking for for 20 days unsuccessfully. But finally, on the last stage, he took not just a, a sprint win, but a dominant. So, I mean, he was, it wasn't even close in the finale. There was a crash, which took a few riders out, but I don't think that really would have made a difference as to how convincing his win was. He was easily the fastest finisher in that finale. He was on Fernando Gaviria's wheel, when Gaviria tried to do what Gaviria does, which is go from too far out, uh, it seems to be his favorite tactic. It doesn't really work very often, by the way. It works uh, better and in this Cavendish corner. Exploded. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He needs that. Yeah. And it was a straight finish, so he was doomed. Slightly uphill, but that didn't help. Yeah, no. And, and Cavendish just exploded around, was so far ahead of him, and Milan, who I think was the other big expected star, did not really factor, honestly. Uh, so Cavendish... I thought he factored. I thought he did a great job of bringing Cavendish up to the front. <laughs> Better than anyone on Astana has done all, all Giro. We, oh, well, I guess we did also kind of skirt around that subject, the, the, the lead-out that uh, that uh, Mark Cavendish received, and not just from Milan, his rival, but also from Garen Thomas. Yeah. That was one of my favorite moments of the whole which Giro. Which was, was really remarkable. You really... I mean, you don't see it often. <laughs> you really do not see, as much as we all like to talk about it, we, it's, a, it's great when it happens, or it's fun, what... You do not see riders from different teams. And it was very clear. There was absolutely races. no yep. question, yep. was there? Yeah. And he, at the end, he also confirmed it. He said, yeah, why not? You know, I figured I'd help well, yeah. brother out. It was that fantastic moment when he'd... So he, he'd been surrounded by Ineos riders for the whole day. And then they'd gone under the 3K barrier. He and Roglic had given each other eyes. You know, well done, mate. And then Thomas reappears and he makes that face to Sanchez. And Sanchez's like, okay, then... I'll jump on that wheel, and then it was it was it was electric. It was brilliant, and then I think even Jake Stewart seemed to be. Uh, I don't think he was really up there to contest the win. He seemed to be getting in the way for Cavendish to have space on the wheels in that final. You know, Brits all together, all old pals, and Jake Stewart was one of the first riders to hug Cav after the finish line. So I think there was there was some. You know, Astana had a few extra riders, or let's say Cav had a few extra teammates. Um, uh, yeah, that was it. Was one of my standout moments from the whole race. It's easy to say that on the day of, but still. 
It was a big standout. And, and man, not even part of the UK. So the fact that those riders were willing to extend their appreciation <laughs> to someone like Cavendish, really just great, great sportsmanship from <laughs> well, them. Well, he does live in East Anglia, Essex. Uh, I used to share training roads with him, actually. But while we're on, yeah, the, before we got to the sprint, we had, I thought of you, Cosmo, because we had the Intergiro competition, <laughs> basically. <laughs> well, a version of it anyway. And I, I, when we realised that uh, Tom's was in the break and then, hang on, there's something to be won here. And then suddenly we had this random extra little competition, one of those subcategories that nobody really notices until you see a picture of somebody on the podium with a, I don't know, usually some sort of local delicacy um uh, salmon if it's norway yeah um and it, or, or a pig if it's in Brittany. Yep. um but yeah so that was the, i really enjoyed that little bit of uh spice besides rowan dennis's apparent determination to get the stage over with quickly because it was very quick or very quick for a stage 21 yeah there wasn't as much uh i, I think this may have been partially due to the crash but I, I there was very little processional uh in the very end when Roglic crossed the line. And, and I think that's probably due to the crash, but he also did not seem that, you know, he put his arms out to celebrate, but mm. it wasn't, there wasn't a big to-do as he crossed the line. Which probably also was just a little aware of the 14 seconds. That's right, yeah, he wouldn't want to have, wouldn't have wanted to give up any time, that's true. Because yeah. quite often really in the tour, you're, they'll lose 14 seconds by doing one of those yeah, team across the line that. finishes. Yeah. That would have been really embarrassing. Uh, yeah. As, as Grand Tour finishes go, 14 seconds after... 21 stages is an incredibly small gap. I will this say I called it last really weekend. Really close. Just, just saying. Hey, it's okay to say that. I, I mean, if you don't, if you don't remind the listeners, then who's going to remember how great of a predictor you are? But we should, while we're talking about the close margins, yesterday's stage, the TT, and I don't mean to backtrack too much, but we were talking about the, you know, the the, the bike issue. We also had that the the crazy changeovers. And it's just as well that it was Roglic who had the mechanical because it, if it hadn't been, Thomas would have had that incredibly slow helmet change <laughs> and a mechanical and he'd have lost the Giro in very embarrassing circumstances. Um, I do wonder but, the net uh, result of Thomas's helmet change, hmm. you know, whether he gained enough time to... I would guess that he did because it's not just the aero factor, or the weight fa- or it's not just the weight factor, it's also the comfort factor. And which is hard to quantify. I mean, Ronan's talked about this a fair bit, how it's so much harder to quantify that sort of thing than it is to quantify just, you know, watts saved at a certain speed. But I would imagine, I mean, it wasn't a fast change, that's for sure, but I would imagine it would have net around zero, uh, <laughs> I would guess. I, I, I asked both of you before we started the, the pod to think of maybe some moments that made the race for you and, and a couple yeah. of other things as well. Uh, so let's jump to that now. Now that, now that the race is, has finished, we, we can look back on the whole race, we can... We could see things with a little more context. Uh, is there a moment that made a race made the race for you, Cosmo? I I don't know if it made the race for me, but um, I kind of liked how on that stage nineteen we saw Roglic maybe feign a little weakness after there was a definite Roglic weakness storyline kind of circulating um, after stage sixteen. Um, and they had a little first climb of the day. There's maybe kind of an acceleration from Ineos, and suddenly Roglic was like getting paced back onto the group, and everybody's like, "Oh no!" And then at the end, it turns out he was he was pretty strong, and he was he was targeting that day. Kind of shades of the old Lance Armstrong pretending to be uh, tired. 
I feel like at this point, when I hear a commentator say, you know, so-and-so doesn't look good, I just, my first thought is like, haven't you seen enough racists to know you never can really know? I mean. Yeah, I, I see a lot of people who don't look good on mountain stages, and they lose like three minutes, and you're like, man, their race is over. <laughs> so, well, I, I, I think the, I think the, the I think you always got to be aware of the potential, but I, I also think yeah. it's more. That's a good um, point. We also pay attention to riders who say, take it day by day, or I felt good, or I felt bad, or I've got a sore knee. It's everything has got to be taken with a little bit of, or we've got to forgive it. And we've also got to take it with a pinch of salt. If if we're talking about things that I liked about this race that aren't maybe my race making moments, um, I really like stage eight. I know you were talking earlier, Dane, about how Thomas, you know, maybe he should have tried other stuff ahead of this final TT to try and gain time. And I think there were two weeks of this race where we could have had lots of opportunities for GC riders feeling good or worried about that final TT to gain time. And I just don't think we saw the, the, the race, the layout of this year, this year didn't really help, but, um, I think we missed a lot of those kind of classic, uh, circuit hillside Italian zero finishes where it could just be everybody, all the GC group rides it together and comes in and no one gains or loses any time. Or if someone's feeling good, they can try to take an advantage there. Plus we usually get a good break battle. We didn't really see that. And we, we did see a couple of uphill finishes where the group really just rode in as if they were finishing a flat stage behind the breakaway. Uh, uh, the first uh, hilltop finish. And I think the second one, the Pino stage really, you know, the people were like the headwind made it so we couldn't attack, but it's, you know, it didn't seem to get in the breakaways way. Uh, so I, I feel like totally. uh, I, as much as, as much as the last week of this race did what it was supposed to do, I, I kind of like it where you have these little opportunities kind of scattered throughout the, throughout the race. So it isn't just nothing happens, nothing happens GC week. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the stage eight is that sort of happy medium that, that could present those opportunities and that while it didn't see Thomas leaving Roglic behind because they finished on the same time that day. They did gain time on basically everybody else uh, while Teo Gigginhart finished with them, and he did not finish the race. But everybody else lost time to them on that day. Not a lot, but enough that it was something. It, it, it was something to, that made a difference. And, I, yeah, I totally agree. More of that, please. Um, and we should mention, I mean, we're now, what, half an hour into the show. Just one, you know, one last time, in case you forgot, Remco Evanapol and Teo Gegenhart both left this race, both possibly the two strongest riders in the race, certainly in the running for two strongest riders in the race, neither one of them finishing, uh, one due to COVID and one due to a bad crash in which he broke his hip, that being uh, Gegenhart. It, it, it is what it is. I mean, it's, it's bike racing and it happens, uh, but we should at least mention that, that those riders were gone and the riders who won the race and are contended to win the race were the ones who kind of stepped up when those two were out. So I'm sure there's a lot of disappointment on the Teo Gegenhart couch uh, as he was watching and unable to contend on his own. And and also as his teammate didn't win the race. Uh, but yeah, that's bike racing. Crashes happen and, well, since 2020, COVID happens too. Uh, for me, to get back to the sort of moments that made the race and, and just moments we enjoyed, I really did think that Almeida's attack on stage 16 when, when he finally did something. And I don't mean he did something as in I was waiting for him specifically, as in somebody in the GC conversation finally did something. That really, yeah, I mean, the, I, I wrote a story for, for Escape over at escapecollective.com uh, that sort of encapsulated that. It, it, he, he, he woke us up, he, and he, he was there to help 
liven things up and really not single-handedly necessarily because there were some I mean Gary Thomas collaborated with him and and there was there was some action other other than that but it was mostly Joe Almeida that day who really decided you know what it's time to do something at the Giro and and from that point on is when the Giro really got interesting actually so chapeau to Joe Almeida uh, if I knew the Portuguese word for hat, I would say it, but I don't. So chapeau, you get the French word. Uh, it's it's something that I feel like I, I was not looking to Almeida to be that one to do that, actually, um, just because I didn't really think he was the, the specific skill set to be the one to put in that big attack, but he did, and the race was all the better for it. And he still ended up finishing third overall. So I think everybody wins kind of like he, he, he on the back of that and, and other things that he did in this race still finished really really well and we got to see some entertaining racing i think largely because of joel made so thank you joel is is the moral of the story kit did you have a, a favorite moment or a moment that made the race or just the biggest moment in the race for you yeah well i think um certainly the g versus Buitrago showdown that i've mentioned already did seem to both wrap up g's story and I mean Derek G's story um, of the whole Giro, but also it had that young pretender. Well, I know they're both young, but we have the inexperienced guy going hell for leather and throwing everything and seeing what sticks. And then you had the small climber who knows that sort of terrain, knows what he's doing, climbing patiently into into a position to take the win, which is basically what happened with the GC. He, We could see on the camera shots it felt like ages that Butrago was just dangling probably a handful of meters or just a small handful of seconds off G's wheel and it wasn't because he couldn't catch him it was because he knew he was going to get there or at least he was pretty bloody sure he was going to get there and he just needed to get there before the finish line he didn't need to do it quickly so that is that kind of personifies GC racing and certainly Roglic's attempt um yeah I mean I think t- the moment when the Giro became the Giro or the weekend or the few days that the Giro became the Giro for me was that second weekend when we had Ben Healy's stage eight win and Evan Poole's, um time trial. And the day after that, uh, the the headwind finish up Gran Sasso. You know, it was when COVID was starting to creep in and we'd had the first mountain stage and we'd been reminded that, yeah, sometimes drama doesn't always happen when we hope it does on Grand Tours. And it was that kind of, okay, the Giro is settling in. The cobbers are being brushed off three-week stage racing. This is gonna. This is a long haul. It's very wet, but there's drama to be had. Ben Healy, a newcomer, can win a race. You've got um, the, the favourites having their say as well. And, but also Andreas Lechnison being one of the many pink jersey wearers of the race, um, sticking around and just... You know, he, he almost, he had to work really hard to stay in that pink jersey for one day longer. And he and he cracked on and then he stayed in the top 10 to the end of the race. So that was a really, I think that was one of the most, if not exciting weekends, most important of the race. Yeah, talking about, listen, he, he finished eighth overall uh, as of this afternoon when the race ended. And one of the big revelations, I think, he and, and uh, Eddie Dunbar, I think the other big name to really show themselves as, as, as GC riders that we should watch. Uh, there are a few other big names that I think we can also 
do a little bit more heraldry for, uh, riders who may have been a little bit unheralded and who now have this golden opportunity on the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast for some heraldry. Uh, I wanted to I wanted to kind of shine the light a little bit on Taman Aronsman, who I think did an impressive job as a domestique throughout the race. Uh, basically was was just kind of constantly there or thereabouts, as the Brits like to say. That's one of my favorite Britishisms, by the way. And yet still finished sixth. And I think for a domestique to put in so much work and still finish sixth overall, is that's a testament to a rider's endurance, climbing ability. Uh, he was eighth in that uphill TT on stage 20. He was seventh in the uh, stage 9 TT. So clearly he's got the TT chops as well. And, and so there's a rider there who I think... On most other teams, he'd be the featured GC guy, and I didn't. I, I did not really expect that good of a performance out of him. I, I, he's a talented rider, but he he really, I think, exceeded expectations in this race. Uh, he's now finished sixth overall at back-to-back Grand Tour appearances because he was sixth at the Volta last year. So Aaronsman, I think, really uh, a great find for Ineos coming out of DSM. Yeah, he's also proved for the second time that he gets stronger into the third week because I remember I seem to remember him not at least being at the front quite so much in the early stages um and sometimes that's a tactic that's a plan isn't it the teams will say okay Aaronsman you can sit in the Grappetto or you can sit the back of the bunch and not worry until the mountains which is when we need you but he still has to be good when he gets to that point and he clearly is and he was MVP along with Lawrence de Plus, who did an awful lot of work as well and also finished in the top 10 if I remember correctly um, so yeah he he's definitely you know he's proven that he's not just a one hit wonder a surprise mountaintop finish at Queen stage winner of the Vuelta yeah that which you know, another sort of example of that third week pro, I think he finished second on a stage in the third week as well at the Vuelta so yeah really able to come on strong in the final week there when so many other young riders, that is what kind of ends up wrecking their GC bids as they kind of fade as the race goes on. So for, for Aronsman, apparently, you know, two Grand Tours in a row where he's done really well into the final week and done really well to finish sixth overall, uh, despite facing some good competition. And, and in this race, uh, doing a lot of work for teammates, uh, you know, at, at the at the Vuelta you know, by the end of that race, he was the sole guy. He was the he was the featured rider for DSM, but for for Ineos at this race, he was not even the second rider on the on the sort of pre-race hierarchy for this team. Of course, Tail Gegenhardt left the race, but for Ironsman to come in as the domestique that he was and to finish sixth is pretty awesome. And I think he deserves some heralding. So I'm blowing the horn for him here uh, in a good way. Uh, the other another rider that I kind of wanted to to herald just a little bit was Elon van Wilder, who finished the race in 12th overall uh, for Sudol Quickstep, and who was another rider who was similarly pretty uh, present on the mountain stages, uh, just generally there or thereabouts, uh, and, and with the GC riders too, in, in general. Uh, he, he spent a number of days actually with the main group rather than being in the breakaway and then just kind of hanging around the way that other riders who were finishing high on those stages might have done. He was with the GC riders on a lot of those days, and... One of those riders who entered this race, I think, planning to be main option as a, as a lieutenant for Remco Evenepoel. Uh, obviously, things went differently for Sudol Quickstep after Evenepoel left the race. 
But it leads me to believe that Evanapul, as a GC rider, uh, is in good hands at this team. I mean, he's not on an Ineos and he's not on a Jumbo Visma, but clearly we've seen Sudol Quickstep sort of not doing as well in the classics as they might have done in the years past, but at least they have built this team around some of their other riders, well, Remco, really, uh, that can help them in the future. And I think he, he uh, being Elon van Wilder, has a bright future with his team, and the team has to be pretty pleased that I think they have this young rider who is a, a strong uh, sort of second card to play behind Evanapool. And, and yeah, another very young rider, Sky's the Limit kind of rider. And, and also, uh, in case you forgot, yet another one of those DSM, I don't really know what to call them, cast-offs? I don't know who cast-off who, but what, yet another rider to leave the team of the DSM diaspora. Yes, exactly. The team formerly known as Giant Alpeson, uh, before their contra- initial contracts were actually up. Uh, and Pseudo Quickstep, I think, pretty pleased to have landed Van Wilder. Uh, What's great about Van Wilder, as as Evanapool's um, lieutenant, or lieutenant, my American friends, um, he, and we saw this at the Vuelta, he was Evanapool's bodyguard, caretaker, childminder at the Vuelta. He's also got a remarkably similar body type. He looks, his body language on the bike is almost identical to Evanipal, which I found rather amusing at the Vuelta last year. The only way you could distinguish them was the red jersey. Um, but yeah, he's, um, I I think it should be noted also that he was one of two riders, Sudal, Sudal Quickstate riders to finish the race. Um, so he had no support whatsoever and he was just hanging out. But he was, I guess somebody must have said to him, you just see what you can do, mate. Um, hang hang in there with the GC riders, um, and and do your thing. Um, yeah, he, he's definitely good value for Evanapool, and seems to be developing at a similar rate in that sort of support role. And hopefully, he gets his own chances. Yeah, I think there are chances to go around at that team at the Grand Tours. So, uh, all right, can't all be deserves... Evanapool, can it? <laughs> can't all be. Who else deserves heraldry? Yeah, I was just going to say that this was like a Giro of unheralded riders for the, in large part. Um, just at least for the first two weeks, it was a bunch of people we had hardly heard of doing all sorts of fun stuff uh, at the front of the race. And that's pretty cool uh, that you kind of kind of look through the, the people who are in the positions where normally you would look for unheralded riders. They all they all got pretty heralded. And that was that was cool to see. Yeah, like Derek G doesn't need us to herald him anymore because that's no. how big of a of a race he had. Where coming into the race, he was very much an unheralded rider, and he kind of blew the horn for himself. We don't we don't need to herald him even because everybody's coming out of this race just so impressed with him and and some of the other riders. I think from the, from the breakaway, there were there were so many riders who were consistently in the breakaway over and over again. And we talked about this last show how hard it is to to be in the breakaway. Just it's so much of it is chance, and to do it multiple days in a row is is super super impressive. But there are a few riders I know we, we could we could shine the light on and Kit Carlos Verona appeared to be one of those for you. I felt like he needed a pat on the back and a hug um, because he was in the breakaway a few times as and Movistar did have a decent race with Eno Rubio getting a stage win, but Gaviria was there. This was his big. This was a big target for him. I didn't, he's not. Well, he's probably going to go to the tour. I don't know. Um, except that they they want to have Enric Mass up there, so who knows. He, he wouldn't be able to compete, I don't think. His his sprint has changed so much. His tactics have changed so much in that sprint scenario. So it was probably sli- a slightly disappointing Giro for them, and they were very, very absent from the GC picture. Um, 
But yeah, Carlos Verona, I believe he's in a contract year. So he was clearly trying to put himself in the shop window. And he was looking really, really good. Was it in stage 19 when he got in that cycling parlance? He was crashed by a car, um, by a Citroen car for the team of said name. Um, I don't know. It, I just he's He won that stage at the Dauphiné last year, was it? Or a couple of years ago, having crashed early in the stage with Enric Mass. And early in the race with Enric Mass. And he has this kind of grin and bear it, go for a mountain stage sort of thing about him. And it didn't work out. And it wasn't his fault. So it, I felt like he deserved a, a mention. But yeah, I think there are two guys on Yama Visma that I want to mention. Sepkus is definitely heralded. Um, and he was clearly... I mean, he got interviewed twice by two different interviewers on the live coverage yesterday. Um which was interesting planning from them, but they were both very good value interviews. Um, but what's notable about him is that he has now been on five winning GC teams with Jumbo Visma. Um, and he's been an integral part of all of those teams. And this is a guy who at one point, a few years ago, we were saying, can this be America's next GC winner? And who knows? He could still be, he's still young. Um, but he, but there are some riders who are, who just it's in their DNA to turn themselves inside out for somebody else, and he that's become his, that's how he earns his money, and he certainly did this week. I mean, without Sepkus, who's to say how much more time Roglic would have lost um, in the rain on Tuesday? Um, but also the other, the other younger Visma rider I want to mention is Tom Glogue, who wasn't as his face wasn't in front of us quite so much as Sepkus, but he. Uh, He's the rider who was called up the night before the Giro started and arrived at the hotel at three in the morning to start the first stage after the disaster that struck that team in the days running up to the race. Um, and he finished the Giro. Uh, Jumbo Visma was one of two teams to finish with a full, well, a full bus. Um, and uh, yeah, it was an impressive ride for the young guy who wasn't meant to ra- race a Grand Tour at all this year. And... He was the, I suppose, owner of one of the most memorable moments of this weekend, um, being his, he was in the first wave of that time trial and he thoroughly enjoyed coming up that final climb. Um, he was one of those to coax the crowd and uh, he was giving high fives to everyone as he crossed the finish line. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a pretty remarkable ride for a guy who was not expecting to race at all and suddenly he finds himself doing one of the biggest races of the season, having had no sleep. All right, final impressions of the Giro. Cosmo, were you on the balance uh, pleased enough at at the end after not loving? Yeah, I mean, I I am a... I do not like my Grand Tours segmented into non-GC and GC. One of the things I find most appealing about the format is that every stage could be anything, and I think we got a segmented tour. But on the flip side of that, I thought I really liked there's there's very much a survival aspect to this race. Um, you know the the old quote about the the ideal Tour de France being the one that only one rider can finish. There, I felt like there was an aspect of that um, in this year's race in a good way. I don't think it. I don't think we want all the good riders to crash out and then have just one guy who manages to finish. Like I think we want we want to see riders go head to head and and figure out who's the strongest or the savviest. But at the same time, like having all those days where 
your focus is on a mountain a week and a half away and you're in the middle of a hundred extremely unhappy people in a rain jacket with no visibility trying to not to get road grid in your eyes for hours on end uh there is something to be said for the the mental toughness and physical toughness to get through that and stay focused on your objectives and i thought that was cool yeah this this seemed to be very emblematic of the sort of the race of attrition where i've heard a lot of races called that over the years but this to me was definitely up there among the the most race of attritioniest of races attritional yeah uh no i'm gonna go with race of attritiony um yeah uh, no, I, I think this was a really great example of it. And I think at the end of the day, it's, it's. I would imagine that makes it all the sweeter for Primoz Roglic to have come out on top for a rider for whom setbacks have become just part of the norm. I mean, so many seasons he's had something, you know, come up. And, and I thought it was just so amazing that he was able to win that final TT despite what seemed like a potential, you know, Oh, well, that's it. There's that last final decisive setback. He might have won, but he dropped his chain. Uh, but he won anyway. So I, I think that the attritional aspect is such a key part of what will make this race memorable. Uh, and in the end, I, I thought, I mean, to, to, to kind of go back to the, the excitement of the final week, I thought the final uh, TT was among the, the most exciting uh, single stage battles at a Grand Tour that I, I've seen recently. Uh, maybe not the most, but up there. Definitely up there. And we, we saw a, a change of of leader on the basically the last possible moment, barring a crash on the final sprint. And it was, as TTs go, it was pretty darn exciting. Part of that may have been that we didn't have super granular time checks and we got footage of riders when we got them. And so there was a lot of the race that was happening in our heads periodically had to check in with the actual race in reality. And I thought that that was a nice change from a sport that's become super analytical and data focused. Yeah. And when we got numbers, quite often we didn't know which way they were or who they were in favor of. But we also, um, I mean, I, I think Roglic has probably got an incredibly expensive bar tab somewhere in his future because the number of Slovenians on that hill was staggering. It must have well, giving him wings to get up there. Um, he was. It was quite a phenomenal atmosphere. And when, in, with the interviews at the end, um, almost drowned out by the chanting, it must have been to be Primoz Roglic or his son, who was enjoying it perhaps more than his dad was. Um, it must have been quite something. And you know, the home advantage. It's like playing at Wembley or something. I don't know. I have to wonder whether Thomas, as he's coming into the finish, maybe knew that he had. He had lost based on the crowd noise because I remember watching after he after the time passed where he needed to to cross the finish line. Those last 16 seconds, 14 seconds, those last few seconds, the crowd was just going berserk because they all kind of knew they'd all been there with their stopwatches or, or on their broadcasts and they knew and they were screaming. And it was just like, I, I think normally in a TT like this, if you have the race lead, you're kind of starting with the advantage of knowing what your opponent is doing. And I think Thomas may have found himself in a situation where he didn't really know that uh, for much of the day until <laughs> until maybe he got some evidence that things had not gone his way uh, in the last few seconds. Yeah, and the emotions, too, have probably gotten the the message over the radio. You know, Roglic has had a mechanical up the road. 
given the our closeness so far and the fact that you just had a mechanical eye, maybe I've got this in the bag to go from that to, yeah. Can I give one last word and just kind of in, indulge my Britishness and say it's give a give a shout out to the weather, which mm. managed to rain on Larry Warbass even with the sun shining. <laughs> that was quite a scene. It was it was like the Giro saying one last shower. But yeah, it, it was feels it, like it, the Giro so often is so weather dependent, and this one seemed to really be uh, even for the Giro to be heavily weather. Inclement weather stricken. I mean, there were just so many gross days. And for anybody to finish the race, is a, it's a feat. Uh, all right, let's jump over to Ride London, which took place over the last three days. Uh, women's World Tour race, three-day stage race, and an unusual Women's World Tour race right now in that it did not feature the SD Works team. So we get to talk about a World Tour race without SD Works having won everything yeah just so that you're aware sd works was not at ride london they were at uh, the turingen race in germany where they filled the podium all three of the gc podium were sd works riders so they were very busy winning they just weren't in london you're not even doing it justice yeah. they're 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 phenomenal they're phenomenal race in germany because they went with an under uh, they went without a full team. They went with five riders as opposed to six. They won the opening time trial and then in the five following stages each of their riders took one of them. So it's ridiculous. They divvied up the wins amongst themselves. Yes. Uh, but over Ride London, it was a sprint show, mostly, where Charlotte Cool, who has proven to be the, the big up-and-coming sprint star of the moment, took two stages and the overall. The one stage she didn't win, she crashed. And we got to see Chloe Dygert finally take the big win that she's been close to for the past three, four weeks uh, through La Vuelta Femenina, La Vuelta Burgos, and and then Ride London, uh, where she finally did take a win on stage two on a very tricky finale. It was good to see Canyon Stram trying some new tactics. They did a lot of late attacks and kind of uh, mixed things up. I I still wonder um, about Digert in some of the sprints. I think stage one, she was in absolutely the perfect spot and then moved out of the perfect spot uh, for reasons I'm not clear on. And wasn't clear to me on stage three whether she or, or, or Micah Vanderdown were um, going to be their designated sprinter. They finished 2-3 very close together. But yeah, it was it was good to see what they were trying. I think it will be interesting to see how S-Dayworks does with it, but... Uh, it, they definitely came in with uh, a plan to do something different and did. Also, we should give a shout-out to the third-place finisher of the race. So the winner overall and the winner of two stages was uh, Charlotte Cool. Chloe Dygert, who won a stage, finished second. Third was Lizzie Dygnan, who just continues to, I don't know, perform in ways that amaze me, to, to have come back from a second pregnancy not very long ago. She did not really resume racing that long ago. It was a month ago. Uh, and she was up there and finished third overall on British roads. Just a, a, another really, really awesome performance from Dagenen. And I think Trek Segafredo, there, there have been several times this year where the team has been missing two, three of their riders. Uh, when everybody's healthy and back and uh, back from having a kid or, or all the other various reasons that they're out, this is a strong team. Uh, now what, what really remains to be seen is what happens to Charlotte Cool, what happens with Trek Segafredo, these 
What happens with Coley Digert when SD Works is in the mix? So that is pretty much everything we'd planned to talk about. We've, we've, I think we covered the Giro pretty comprehensively, a Giro that ended on a high note in terms of excitement, unless you're Garrett Thomas, uh, who probably was more disappointed than he was excited with the, uh, with the way that final TT turned out. But Mark Cavendish taking the big win for the Brits. I, I would imagine Garrett Thomas got some solace with that. He did play a role in it. Uh, and Primoz Roglic, I think, really changing the narrative. Uh, to me, it's a little wild that he even had a narrative around him, considering he, he did win three Vueltas a España. But at the same time, I think there was this narrative of, uh, of, of Roglic not being able to close it out. And he did. He closed it out. He, he overhauled to Garen Thomas. Hope you enjoyed all of the three weeks of racing. Hope you enjoyed us rambling on about the racing over the past few weeks. And I hope you're excited for more of that because there's a lot of stage racing ahead, a lot of exciting things to come in the world of bike racing because it's late May. That means we just have more and more action ahead. Specifically, coming up in between now and the next show will be one stage, I think. I think that's the right number of stages of the Criterium du Dauphiné, which kicks off on Sunday of the coming week. So we won't have that much at that point that we'll know about the race and how it has unfolded, but we'll have one stage to talk about, and I think more importantly, we'll be able to do a little bit of previewing. I mean, the race will have started, but we can look ahead uh, as well. There's going to be some big names in that race. Jonas Vingago is going to be building towards his Tour de France bid. Uh, I believe Egan Bernal is slated to race there, and I'm sure we'll find out plenty of other big names as the time approaches. So... You'll have to come back and hear us talk about what's up at the Couture de Dauphiné next week. In the meantime, hope you enjoy the last few days of May and the first few days of June. Cosmo, Kit, great talking to you as always. And we will see you, listeners, or you'll hear from us at least, next week. Bye for now. Bye for now.